My name is Franco, and I'm the editor here at PropMoto. Thanks for listening to this podcast about affordable housing. This is just one episode in a series where I interview people working to make housing more affordable. To understand why affordable housing is not only one of the most important things that the property industry should be addressing, but how it is one of the biggest opportunities as well. Thanks for listening. Building affordable housing is not easy. In order to get any affordable project off the ground, a vast array of individuals, organizations, and governmental entities need to all work together. Getting all of these moving parts synchronized requires someone with a lot of experience in doing these kinds of deals. Making sure all of the stipulations of these deals are correctly thought about and documented generally requires a lawyer, or more than likely many lawyers, who specialize in affordable housing. So, to get an understanding of what the war for affordable housing looks like on the front line, I spoke to a lawyer who has a lot of experience helping make affordable housing developments work. My name is Hera Perkins, and I am a partner with the law firm Goldstone and Stores. We're a real estate-focused East Coast law firm, but practice all over. Hera has been involved in a lot of affordable housing transactions, all of which, she explained, have their own unique complexities due to the range of clients, incentives, and financing that each deal requires. So I often represent developers in this space, and many of my clients are mission-driven to some extent, mission-driven for-profit developers. So they don't necessarily have a 501c3 charter that says this is what they have to do and they have to reinvest their profits in their mission. But the founders or the money behind them said, we want to invest in low-income housing. That's what we're doing. And we want to be creative about it. We want to be innovative. We want to have housing that is uh, perhaps environmentally friendly in addition to being available to people at lower income bands. So I tend to represent mission-driven for-profit developers. I also represent city agencies in this space. And then I often get involved with lenders and investors. And I like this range of client mix for me because when I get involved early on in a deal, we often don't know the full shape, the full arc the deal will take. Uh, And by that, I mean, we don't know what is the tax structure or the the entity structure or what subsidies will make this development possible. You might think that Hera went to law school with the goal of being an affordable housing attorney. The reality is much different. Like many people I talked to in affordable housing, she came into it by chance. I was working in a museum. The museum was negotiating an expansion with the city and how the bus access would work. So land use approvals, they were negotiating the land use approvals that would ultimately impact how many children could visit per day. And at the same time, I was volunteering with a non-for-profit where the mission of the non-for-profit was to bring in very young, low-income children, so children of low-income families at a very young age, into museums because a museum visit would increase their vocabulary and increase their, um, their world, expand their worldview. And... And I thought, well, I'd much prefer to be 
or if I not, I wouldn't prefer it. I would be better at being the lawyer for a museum or being the lawyer for the city than being a curator at the end of the day. I appreciate art. I love art. I love to visit museums, but let's leave that to someone else to do professionally. Affordable housing has typically been reserved for developers and landlords who specialize in that type of asset. But one of the things that has her optimistic about what can at times seem like a grim future of affordability in our cities is the flow of new entrants into the space from both the quote-unquote traditional real estate side to the larger business world. So I think we're at a moment in time when you actually see a number of new entrants coming into the affordable housing development space. And these are people who maybe have been in real estate development in some capacity and they're putting their, their toe in the water. Or this is, or, or we're seeing big business that realize their business and the jobs they create have an impact on the communities in which they do business. And so they, they feel in some way obliged to preserve the affordability of the communities or, you know, or not just that they feel obliged, they realize we are not going to have teachers or we are not going to have staff. We need to make sure there's a range of income bands in, and, and it's actually the private sector that I feel like is stepping in of its own accord because it makes sense for them stepping in to this space and saying, let's look at how we can. And it might not be that they're doing complicated tax credit, low-income housing. It might be that they're doing middle-income housing and coming up with a strategy that is very minimal subsidy, but allows the housing to be more proximate to their office or, or this or that. Any development particularly those that happen in inner cities, can easily get labeled with the dreaded G word, gentrification. For some, this word represents new coffee shops and cafes. But many locals often worry about what development means for their ability to stay in the neighborhood, as development can often lead to the cost of living rising out of reach for current residents. Affordable housing is often folded into larger development projects, so Hera has to negotiate with community groups to get them done. She thinks that there are a lot of benefits to redevelopment, as long as it is done right. So I would say gentrification is a pretty complicated subject that I feel like is often treated cursorily in when, when you're having a conversation about it and... Uh, and people see it as black and white and, uh, and it really takes digging into the details of the neighborhood, what is happening there to understand it better. So you can have, you know, gentrification in worst, the worst case scenario is, uh, you have some triggering event. Maybe it's that, uh, there's a new, subway station or a new public amenity or something that allows a functioning low-income neighborhood to be dominated by people who are willing to pay more and pay more and pay more in rent until 
the original community is displaced. That's gentrification, I feel like, in its worst case. But there are other elements of what might be happening with gentrification that are not, certainly not as heinous as that, and maybe not even bad at all. So, for instance, you might have a low-income neighborhood that is not functioning. By not functioning, I mean has zero grocery in a time period when people are not having grocery delivered, but it has zero grocery stores. It has a um, school system that is unsafe. It has a level of, of violent crime on the street. And because of its proximity to an urban center or some other reason, you begin to have some property is redeveloped. Now, if people are managing this, and it could be the city managing it, it could be local nonprofits, it could even be the for-profit developers that are mindful of the existing tenant population. It, it might be that you improve a neighborhood and you still preserve the benefit of those improvements for the population that existed already. Hera's background outside of real estate has given her a unique perspective on the pieces of the affordability puzzle that isn't just about building affordable units. She sees education as a critical component of creating more upward mobility and equality in our cities. But unfortunately, this too has been tied to property. So it's actually kind of funny that we tied housing and schools together. And by funny, I mean coincidental. We could have created any other regime. We could have said schools are financed through a tax on the whole country and schools everywhere are financed the same way. But instead we tie the financing of school districts to the local real property taxes. And over time, that creates very well-financed public schools in a wealthier neighborhood and underfinanced public schools in a less wealthy neighborhood, in a low-income neighborhood. And that's the problem. That, that, that doesn't lead to a good result. One of the reoccurring themes from my conversations with people in the trenches of the affordable housing industry is that you need to be able to speak the language of many different specialties. Hera described the closing of an affordable housing development deal as a dinner party. You have to set everyone a place at the table to get them all to come together and get the deal done. Hera is a lawyer, but she looks and acts nothing like the stereotypical lawyers we see in movies and on TV. She seems like she would be more at home talking to donors at a fundraiser art show than litigating a contentious real estate contract. But she is proof that in affordable housing, you need to, first and foremost, be a person that can find ways to get people to agree. Sometimes that requires a softer touch, a shared vision, and a really well-planned dinner party. I would like to take a minute to thank the sponsor for this series, MRI Software. 
One of the things I learned researching affordable housing is that to operate at a high level, or to even operate at all really, you have to be very efficient. MRI has software designed to help managers of public and affordable housing be more efficient, more sustainable, and more profitable. They have been trusted for years by all types of real estate companies to help them expand their capacity and maximize the value of their portfolios. Check out what they can do for you at mrisoftware.com.